jokes as structural objects as jokes as structural objects none of those made sense uh well yeah <laughs> uh actually you're right uh okay yeah i don't know man <clears throat> i haven't really been talking or thinking mm. so it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of brain garbage for me oh, this boy. time i think and i was such a bummer on the last episode i feel like i bummed everybody out so yeah you're, i'm, you're I'm gonna try like, to be fun this time oh oh this is oh this is what we're getting we're getting the trying to be fun and uh, which is not good i suppose yeah, yeah it's you gotta let it like work through well you. okay all right i'm gonna let it work through me but i'm just i'm just shaking off the rust right now okay, okay. you've been Fair. opening the door to all these all these crazy things anyway i know i'm 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 you know lobbing setups and it's a lot of swing and a miss here i was thinking about actually I don't remember if it was yesterday or earlier today or what, but how um, how willing you've been to be pretty upfront about your life on the show. What? Yeah, you talk about your stids a lot. Oh, who cares? I guess it doesn't matter. It only happened once. Right. But you just still, get a twofer. Yeah, but it, it doesn't bother you to have that recorded at all. Fucking cares. Okay. What? It's not like we have a lot of listeners, listeners or anything, but like it is out there, you know? It's on the record. I guess it doesn't really have any any stakes. Do I have a permanent record? This is, yes. Yes, you do. Well, the internet is a permanent record, but it's like, whatever, you get a shot and a pill and you're fine. Yeah, okay. I know. I mean, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Strep throat is actually worse. Uh, what do you mean? Like... More painful. Okay. Less gross. That's interesting. But more painful. Hmm. Use your imagination. It's less... It's... Strep throat... Like, I've had strep throat to the point where I couldn't swallow. Like, I had to take, like, pill... And I always do. So, <laughs> like, but, like, I've had to t- have... I'm st- just making you do it for me. <laughs> I know. Um, but, like, I've had to take steroids in order to, like, even, like, swallow tea. Like, because uh-huh. it hurt so bad. Because, like, and I was like, I probably had, like, some kind of, like, throat stid, probably. Yeah, that can, that can happen, actually. But, like, the first person who, like, ever, like... One time when I got, like, I had double strep throat, I was like, how the fuck is this happening? I never get this. Wait, 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 wait. What does that mean? I got it, like, twice in one season. Oh, okay. Like, one okay. winter season. I, I was, was gonna like, say, you, you can't on? have a singular disease simultaneously. Yeah, no, I got, like, I got it again. Like, they were just like, here, have a steroid. You don't have a, you don't have strep throat, but, like, why don't you take this for the swelling? I was like, so, uh, we gonna address the underlying cause? And they're like, no. I'm like, okay, never coming here again. Um, Doctors do that a lot, huh? That's what my dermatologists always do to me. What? I keep, you know, I keep going back for my various skin conditions, and I'm like, so is there anything we can do about this, like, long-term? And they're like, not really. I mean, there probably is. It's just more expensive, and they're like, mm, are you going to pay for it? Probably not. I mean, yeah. I think it, it's not even really that expensive. It's just about you have to continue to go to the doctor all the fucking time. You know, yeah. you have to keep going back like every two weeks for the rest of your life, basically. No. Keep being prescribed things. Keep trying things out. You know, that's their business model, I guess. When I was like 16 or 17, I went to a dermatologist and they were like, mm, everything's fine. No more. Like, they were just like, eh. are you going to use the like, they literally were like, are you going to use the the sulfur wash? I'm like, no, it smelled like shit and it didn't work. Sulfur wash? Yeah. It was what is like, that supposed to cure? Like cystic acne. Like I had like. Dots that would be like hard. It'd be like, eh, it hurts. Oh, interesting. I need to get me some of this. It no, it smells like boiled eggs, and it's disgusting. Um, it's, it's okay. I kind of smell like that anyway right now. I ran out of deodorant this morning, and I'm feeling a little uh, moist around the pit area. 
because it's humid and swamp ass outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's not it's getting really unpleasant. Yeah. These days. But anyway. I mean, you also have an air conditioner that you could have just been like, time to let it let it ride. You know, I thought about that today, but I drove around in air conditioning all day today. It was lovely. Um, my window sill is not substantial enough to support the air conditioner. So last season when I put it in, I constructed an apparatus to support the back of it. Uh huh. And when I removed it in the fall, it fell down into our our neighbor's backyard, and they threw it away. I didn't even try to get it back. I'm just assuming they threw it away. So now I don't have it, so I can't really put it in without a little bit of construction. Huh. And we don't have a drill here. Don't you just need a brick underneath the back? Well, the, again, the windowsill doesn't have enough space to set anything on. Uh... So last time I had to build like kind of a shelf thing and then like weight it down in the front. Uh, and then the air conditioner sat on there. This dr- is really engaging. You should just drill it to. Th- I mean, yes, it's fascinating, but also like just drill it in. Like every other, like there's holes in all, every Brooklyn window casing. You just. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just too lazy to do that last time. I'm not opposed to to doing that at oh all. My God. It's it's not about that. Don't you remember? I already broke the uh, security bars. Like the Incredible Hulk, I ripped them out of the window. Yeah, I thought those are. I th- I honestly thought those are just for babies to not fall out of. No, no, no. Those are anti-air conditioner things. Oh. They might be anti, like, no, because they're not substantial enough to, like, stop a burglar from breaking your window, you know? They're not like those grates that you see on first floor windows. They're not that. But, no, they're not for stopping toddlers, I don't think. You're not supposed to have an air conditioner in your window. Why? I forget, like, all the ins and outs of this, but I remember researching it when I was trying to get these bars Well, you're supposed to get the, like, um... You're supposed to actually like launch it in the top part and then have a little shelf that it sits on that's bracketed inside. Oh, I guess so. I, I like you'll get tickets. I'm having like a fines. hard time recalling this, but I think the idea was that they don't technically the city does not want window units in upper floor windows because they could just fall out and like hurt somebody. Yeah. And I think it was probably also like some outdated legislation from landlords that like didn't want their electric bill to go up in case, you know, each individual unit doesn't pay their bill or whatever. I forget what it is, but there was some, there was some complicated thing about why all the windows have those things. And it seems like it's from another time because obviously nobody cares. Everybody has window units, but yeah. yeah. But so they put those bars on there and those security screws are no joke. You can't get those off with regular tools. So, huh? Well, anyway, where are we going with this? I don't know. I think you were talking about swampy and you didn't want to. Yeah. But you were talking about strep throat and taking steroids yeah, I, w- I went twice for, I was like, I have strap throat again. And then like the second time I went and they're like, yeah, you sure do. They just even looked. They're like, yeah, no, that's too much. Here, have a pill. And I was like, great, thank you. Have two pills. And honestly, love steroids. You feel like the incredible fucking Hulk. You're like, I have so much energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have steroid cream for my skin that, that I use every day. It's not the same as a pill. I guess not. Does it get you jacked? Do you get over your strep throat and you look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson? Yeah, with tiny balls. <laughs> uh, no it, marbles yeah you no, you just feel like it's like you did like adderall or something you're just like i am not it, tired really there's like a palpable physical effect oh it. i was like i was like i can do anything oh it was great i was like can i have more of this please interesting this yeah. just like puts a little pep in my step i'm not tired i was like yeah mm. let's do things isn't that why people get b12 shots what yeah, I, 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 are you Madonna? I don't like mean what? to do an inappropriate callback, but I believe like during the AIDS epidemic and 
uh, when people were kind of dying, they would give them B12 shots. I remember reading about Keith Haring um, always being really like up after getting a B12 shot when he was dying. Oh, I don't know. And I think they do that with cancer patients too. Huh. But I don't know why B12 does that. I don't, I don't know, know if it's a steroid or... But no, see, I just didn't realize... It's just vitamin B. Okay. There's just... lots of different vitamin Bs. Like, there was a time in the 90s where, like, celebrities would be like, yeah, I just get my shot once a month. I get my B12, get my B vitamin infusions. Mm. It's interesting that they do Kabbalah. it intravenously. Don't you think you could just supplement it with a pill? Or, like, is there a lot of... Um... I think it's, like, so much dosage that you're like... Bleh! But yeah, yeah. I think a lot is lost when you take a pill, right? Because you end up shitting or pissing it out. I don't know. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I've been listening to a lot of Joe Rogan, so I've been hearing a ton about (sighs) supplements and vitamin D and, you know, stuff like that. So it's on my All very accurate medical advice. Uh, Such accurate medical advice. It's not as bad as you would imagine. Um, I think he knows more about medicine than you or I do. I know nothing about medicine. Exactly. <laughs> but that's a, low, that's a low bar to fulfill <laughs> right there. Um, no, like if I take a vitamin for more than a day, I do feel a little bit better by day three and then I forget like for five days. Really? You notice it? Yeah. Okay. Like I don't nap if I have a vitamin. Oh. Very weird. Why don't you take them all the time? Though? I forget. Yeah. Because you have to eat them on like a full stomach. Oh, really? Not, I don't follow I'm not that, that person. I mean, I take lysine every morning because I heard that it's good for lip herpes. What? That if you take lysine supplements that you won't get cold sores as much. Huh. You'll still get them. And you know what? I've been doing it for like two years and it seems to work. Hmm. I That's only right, get... ladies. He's got herpes. Uh-huh. I only get one a year now instead of like two or three. So it's nice. It does seem to work. That's gross. Listen, I didn't get herpes from a dirty girl, okay? Mm-hmm. I got it from my grandma or somebody when I was a young child. Uh-huh, I've sure. had it since before I had sex. So, well, doesn't mean grandma's off the table. You never know. <laughs> hey, watch, <laughs> watch your mouth. That's my family you're talking about. See, you know, you got to be... I don't have a soundboard, so i got to make sound, like tongue pops, so, mm-hmm. you know, because I can't snap my fingers. I have to tell you, I kind of miss the soundboard in a weird way. It, yeah. it feels it feels like we're doing the podcast sort of naked. Yeah, it's very weird. Uh, and also, we've been this do- is unplugged. We've been doing a lot of guests and stuff too. Yeah. So there's been a lot of like other stuff going on. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like this is a return to form for us these last two episodes. Uh, middling and uninspired. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, yes. That's that's very true. I mean, <laughs> that's sort of our thing. I mean, it's. I mean, I I was going to make a point about something 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 middle brow like you know like a. I've been consuming a lot of like middling things in the last couple days. Like even the book I tried to read, I was t- talking about this with people on a, a Zoom happy hour today. Like I started reading a book and I was like, like guys, can you give up on something after a hundred pages if it's just like not going anywhere and you're not feeling it? Ooh, that's tough. What did they say? They're like, I think if you're not sold and it's not going anywhere and it's written badly, you can end. I have a follow up question. How long is the book? Right there. Oh right there oh so you're okay i'm looking at the book right now a hundred pages is about halfway yeah you're a little less than halfway and i don't even care how it because it's like three chunks of like it seems like it was written as three long passages yeah and the and the metaphor i used was it's stapled together versus glued together Uh uh-huh as like an an arc narrative and i was like i'm not arch narrative and i'm not 
It's not working for me. We're talking about What Belongs to You, a novel by Garth Greenwall. Green, Greenwell? Greenwell. Yeah. Greenwell. Never he wrote, heard of the guy, never heard he of He wrote book. a thing that was getting like a, a lot of like Instagram ads and a lot of like... That's a bad sign. Illiterati right were like, this is great. Can I just say that I already wouldn't read the book? Well, no, not this book, but like a current thing, like a oh, okay. current set of things was out. And I was like, well, I'll just read this one because I'm not, we talked about this uh, a different day, but I'm not into buying hardback fiction. Right. I will. No, thank you. I'm not paying $23 for no, thank you. Yeah. We were discussing how it's, how it's tough when you're a buyer of books, what to do in that situation. Because you can buy the hardcover and, and it's expensive, but then it's a substantial thing that you're only going to read once, or you have to wait a year for the paperback. Yeah. In which case, who cares? You're, it's out of date. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only hardback fiction that I am ha- a happy owner of is uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, like first edition. Yeah, yeah. Happy about that. Like, it's actually a beautiful object, too. Like, it has, like, the hand cut. Well, and that book has so much to do with the formatting of the words on the page yeah. that like having it in that form seems like the ideal form. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good it's a good as an object, but like this I'm like this isn't even good words. Right. Fuck I don't want it. Like I, I don't know what to do. What well, uh, can So do you you're going to not read it? I'm gonna, I think I'm going to abandon it. Yeah. That that's a tough question. I don't know what I would do there. I think I would finish it, especially given the length of the book, just to do it. <sighs> I just there's very few books that I've gotten a hundred pages into and abandoned. That's a pretty long way to go. That's a lot of sunk cost. Well, it was like fifty, you know, like twenty five pages, and I was like, "This isn't written that well. I'm not feeling this." And then I was like, "Let me just give it some more time." And then it was just a series of "Let me give it more time," and that was the only feeling I was right, taking right. away. And I was like, "I think it's this, this is just what's the sunk cost?" And I think it's you know right right yeah i'm familiar with that feeling but i've only hmm i guess i've only gotten that feeling in books where the writing is not bad but is complicated like i'm thinking of the sound and the fury by faulkner are you familiar with that book no. it's really non-linear and it's written from four different characters perspectives so similar to this book it's sort of broken up basically just in four chunks it's not Mm. a very long book and each chunk is from a different character's perspective with a different style Uh now it's really well written which helps but it's hard because like one of the characters is mentally impaired so you know there's no punctuation the thoughts are really out of control so it's like difficult on that level and i and i had the same feeling of like um uh, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. Yeah. And that's the only feeling you have until the very end of the book. Gravity's oh. Rainbow is similar too, but like, I think that's a really different thing. Like that just has to do with stylistic affectation mm. and not really with like quality. Yeah. I Well, like the first chunk of that book was published in like, like, I don't know, like a McSweeney's or some sort of like other publication. And it's just like, Oh, so you couldn't actually deliver a whole new book. So you just took your one long essay and just, through oh, some I shit yeah, i was like yeah. i no no mas i no well that's yeah that's tough because there is a tradition of like publishing novels kind of chapter by chapter in yeah. publications but i get what you're saying that that can also be taken advantage of where you actually didn't have a novel you had a good short story and then you just expanded it you got a book deal out of it but yeah. couldn't come up with a whole new book so you're like let me just uh uh work this uh, uh. and you're like oh, i don't want this it's terrible have you read this writer before? No. Garth Greenwell? No. no. Yeah. Huh. I, it was just like, oh, this is like a genre, like in the like, you know, contemporary people talking about it shit. And I was like, ugh. 
no hard pass yeah i don't know i i don't know maybe it's a stage of quarantine or just boredom or whatever but i've been having kind of a tough time reading too i'm still getting a lot of reading done but i'm reading three books at the same time and that's not like a good thing that's a terrible idea i just pick up whatever one i have the closest like vibe for on a certain day no because it really depends on the mood because uh well, I'll just say, I'm trying to read the second volume of Capital. I'm trying to read uh, Schopenhauer, uh, The World as Will and Representation, and then uh, a book by de Tocqueville called Democracy in America, which is very good. That's the one that I read the most frequently. Huh. The Schopenhauer book is obviously tough and really technical, as is the I thought it was Tocqueville. Book. Is it Tocqueville? I don't know how to pronounce it, I have to be honest. I think it's Tocqueville. 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 But it's T-O-C-Q-U-E. That's what throws me off. It sounds like it would be Tocqueville. No, no qu. Okay. That sounds, that's the, that's a very American French. Like butchering. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's it's Tocqueville. Tocqueville, yeah. Tocqueville. Like que? Que? Okay. Que is? That's (laughs) Spanish, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I think it's, you gotta like sound out the things, man. It's you can't hard. just read things it's and hard. Just be like, not, I pronounce this. And I'm like, what are I'm you I'm not saying? good with, um, like, phonetics. You know how at the top of a Wikipedia page it has, like, the phonetic spelling of a word? Uh-huh. I don't know how to read those those characters. What? You know what I mean? You don't know how to read the strikes on the things? Well, because it's not just strikes. Sometimes there's, like, weird Latin letters in there or, like, a weird squiggly line. Yeah. I don't know what that means. So I can't I can't figure out how to pronounce words because I don't know how to read that. Didn't you learn German? I know some German, yeah. A lot of phonetic pronunciation relies on, like, German modifiers and umlauts and shit. Yes, yes, yes. So I under, I'm not saying I understand none of it, but I simply cannot read it in total. Huh. Yeah, that that to me looks like looking at an algebra equation or something. It huh. just doesn't make any sense. If I see the umlaut, like I understand what that sounds me sound means. I can mm. get parts of things, but I I don't. Huh? Because they don't teach you that. I feel like that should be a subject in school. Whatever that like phonetic alphabet, I guess is what it's called. Yeah, is that should that there should be lessons on that? How what is that, and how do you read it? Uh how 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 are you expected if you're not like a linguist or somebody in that field to ever learn that? I think, well, you do the, it's like that, it's like spelling, where you do the, like, I before E, except after C, neighbor's way, some shit like that. Like, it tells you, like, how it's going to sound based on the spelling. No, I understand, dude, I understand what it does. That That is not a mystery to me. I understand what a phonetic alphabet is there to do. Yeah. But if you don't know the component parts of the alphabet and what they represent, you can't make the connection to the pronunciation. It just looks like an abstract symbol. Yeah, but like, uh, think about like the word phone. Like, if you didn't know, would you go pahone? Maybe. <laughs> like, I mean, like, look because the you, pahone. No, no, no. Like, like, what? like I, no. I, I think this is forgivable, especially when it comes to like a French name is a good example because they don't have the same grammatical rules. I wouldn't do that with a ph word in English because I know that ph is a f sound. Yeah. But if it's a PH in Swahili, I don't know what that means. And then if I see the phonetic alphabet and it's not an F and it's like a Mm. weird K with a squiggle on it, I don't know what the fuck that's supposed to sound like. A K with a squiggle. That was just, that's not a thing. That's just a pure hypothetical. But you Mm. get what I'm saying. It's like, it doesn't help. No. You know, when when you're in second grade. French just sound like you're like clearing your throat. 
The I don't. Thing. I don't understand guttural sounds very well. German doesn't actually have that much of that. No, the it, French are. It has rolled R's, and then it does sort of have those guttural sounds, I guess, on the U with the umlaut. But mm-hmm. yeah, but it's more like your... swallowing it. It's not like growling it. I always think the French thing is sort of this like back of the throat. Yeah, growl. it is. But yeah. like German, you have to do the underbite. Right. Huh. It's probably just because I had exposure to it that that seems easier. I don't oh. think that it is. It's just that it's hard to. I never knew what like the like uh you know that the the long s or the s that look like for strasse. Yes. I was always like what the fuck is that? And then I was like I don't want to say it's it sounds like a double s cuz fuck it this looks like it. The way yeah, the way I was taught about that was basically it's like a double and or triple s or like two s's and a z. Well yeah, cuz that might not be right but it's something be, like that. Would be in English triple s. Yes. So that's why it's got the interweaving things. But, like, you just kind of intuit, I don't know, just the visual symbol. You're just like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I don't intuit, I don't intuit symbols. Okay. (laughs) I guess, I guess it makes me a pretty bad artist if I can't do that. But, like. You can't use the visual information and solve a problem? Not really, because I, I really, I don't like this about language and written language is that it doesn't like I wish that I grew up in China or Japan or something where the languages are um, they're phonographic and lexicographic. Huh? That means that they they both um, represent the sound and are a picture sort of. Like, mm-hmm. they're highly abstracted pictures, yeah. but like our letters have no relationship to what they are saying they're only phonetic it's only a phonetic language i mean when i okay so when i was in like uh, second grade let's say i think it's second third i don't remember um i was obviously i was a nerdy child no one no one shocked but like i was very into ancient egyptian shit as a little kid so like i could there was probably a period where i could like glance at uh what are they called hieroglyphs yeah and like cartouches and like figure out what the spelling was so really like, you kn- you were that good at that i mean i still remember that the zigzag is an r because i had like i think we talked about this on an old episode actually about castles but i had a cutaway book that was like about pyramids mm-hmm. and i think it had like a bookmark or like a page in it or something that mm-hmm. gave you the hieroglyphics like, yeah a little codex right yeah but i never got to the level where i could actually read any of it i mean it's just one of those things you like obsess over and you're like yeah that's that 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 and it's like yeah yeah, I only remember R. What is R? Zigzags. River. Waves. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so... I feel like you just... And then there's like a bird one that's B. Yes. Yes. I feel like we're... Th- a is Ankh. Uh, I yeah. think. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't remember. And then there's the wheat one, oh, but I don't damn. remember what the wheat one is. Is that R? I don't know. I think you're right about river being R, like the waves. And then S is maybe the sheath of... Wheat? Yeah, I don't know. Once again, very fascinating listening. But I, but I am, <laughs> but I am. Um, it's so weird. You just made that flash in my brain. Like at one point in time, I did know that too. It's one of those things yeah. where, like, that sets up your like pictographic memory of like words and shit. Where you're like, huh? All right, I get it. Like, because even like, I don't know. Like, things are icon. Like even like sw- what's that thing? Like squiggly road. Like you know, curves are coming. Oh, like just on a road sign yeah, you're saying? Like, yes. Yeah, like you know it, even though you're like, what are you talking about? This is a straight shot. And you're like, whoops, never mind. Well, yeah, th- things like that are fascinating to me because those are not supposed to be 
they're they're not language in the same sense that writing is. They're yeah. much closer to art in that they're they're almost like platonic symbols or something. Like, they're literally telling you what's going to happen. Well, they're supposed to be able to tell anybody, regardless yeah. of whether or not you speak English or whether or not you can even hear. Yeah, like uh, what to do or you know. Wait, are you supposed to drive if you're deaf? Can you drive? If you're I think deaf? deaf people can drive. I'm not sure though. That seems suspicious. I'm pretty sure. Like, why not? I mean, you know. What if someone's talking at you and some you, like you don't I, hear yeah. an ambulance coming from the side? Oh, or... that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, you know what? But I, but I guarantee you that deaf people can drive with certain amendments to their car. Or if, or if there's like the, uh, like a lot of times you can just uh, they get the implant and they can hear. Right, you can hear enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, but I also bet there's things in their car that like you could probably get something installed in your radio console that will like make lights flash oh, in a subtle something. way inside yeah. your car if a, a emergency vehicle is passing or something. Yeah, they must have things like this because like paraplegic people can drive, for example, but yeah. but they outfit their cars with like hand controls. Uh, you know, okay. so I would imagine that hearing impaired people can probably. I drive want too. hand controls for car. Uh, that sounds easier. Well, no? a lot of newer cars kind of have that. Really? Like, in the same sense that there's cruise control on your steering wheel, newer Which... cars you can accelerate and decelerate. I don't think you can brake. Huh. But you can accelerate and decelerate on the steering wheel. Yeah. Wow. Given my propensity to brake a lot, that would be so nice to do it, like, with my thumb. Well, we were talking about Teslas earlier today. I bet Teslas are controllable by the steering wheel. I mean, I don't... No, thank you. Well, then, okay, then you don't really want it, I guess. Not that you're not no. you're not willing to get on board with. Um, I don't want the landmaster of X-A-E-A-12's cars. Thank you very much. Twelve's father. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, no, that that truck is the most god awful abomination in the entire world. Like that is a visual blight yes, on the world. Cyber truck is pretty horrible. I have to admit, they just got stoned. Played Star Fox Super Nintendo and were like, "What if we car it?" No, no, you know what like, though? There it is. That's kind of genius because I think you're right about that. I think they designed that car based on like Nintendo 64 graphics because it will appeal to the millennial nostalgia of the douchebags that are in the market for it. I guarantee you that was a calculated choice. That's not an accident, really, at all. Wow. It's definitely based on like 64-bit video game vehicles. One hundred percent, it has to be. Oh, because that was the image. Well, that was every car that like. ID dudes drew, like drew. Of course, and well, and they're it's like, like it's just a wedge with no wheels, and you're like, there aren't flying cars, so unless you're an engineer, let's put some wheels well, on that. Yeah, fucker, I mean, shall they're we? like they're like barstool sports simpletons, right? They can't really think beyond triangle. Speaking as someone that was just saying, but, I can't really read. Yeah, good. Well, let's pop up little <laughs> black right there. I mean, I yeah, I never really like the product. People are always the most interesting. Uh, explain what that means, product people. Like, there's, like, industrial design. I want to make car. And then car is just, like, you know, a lemon wedge with wheels. And you're like, okay, that's with markers. I don't Got mean it. to be too pedantic or whatever, but, like, I actually think industrial designer should be the more elevated. That should be product design. Like, you're thinking about ergonomics and things like that and use and... I mean, to be clear, what we're referring to here is that where we went to school, there was car guys in industrial design, car and then there was people that were not interested in cars. Like, that's the fundamental yeah. distinction, and the people that were not interested in cars that you're calling product designers uh, were always the more interesting, like, thinkers and They were sensitive artists. boys, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they it, it was actual things that you're like, oh, I could see that in the world. Interesting. Um, I mean, whichever fucking designer made this 
AirPods case that has no hard corners that always ends up at the bottom of my bag, I do want to fight in the street. Really? You you don't think the AirPod case is a good design? No. Why not? Absolutely. You already said the hard corners thing, but why? This, if given my propensity to have phones fall out of my pocket in cabs, uh-huh. this is an even heavier, thicker uh, lozenge to shoot out of my pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I need one hard edge to, like, weigh it down or something. Like, it's not... It's too smooth. A, a lot of people, um, even that are like Apple stands, have this same problem with iPhones and other things that basically, why are you making bars of soap? Truly. Why, why is this constantly difficult to hold? Um, th- that's interesting to me, though, because I think it looks good. See, normally I would think that you would take this position, that the utility was not the purpose of the thing, that it's supposed to look good. Yeah, I... Because after all, like Apple products, maybe not so true anymore, but are basically status items or were. Were, but like, again, this goes back to interface things. Like the interface is so self-explanatory. You don't have, like, if you try and open up a like Google phone or an Android, you're just like, oh, this is organized like trash. Yeah, I don't even know what's going on. No. Like when I've dealt with my friends like Google Pixels or whatever, or my dad has some kind of weird Samsung phone, I'm like, this... I don't understand. Sucks. I don't, yeah, I don't even know what to do to open a thing. I don't even know how to make a phone call. Exactly. It's too hard. And I'm like, where's the button that just says phone? It's not that it's, see, this is actually interesting and a good callback to a frequent thread in our conversations is it's not intuitive. No. I like, I get mad at things like, we, did we have this conversation on or off pod about like the intuitive teach you way design of Nintendo? I think that was off the pod. We should t- we should rehash that a little bit. Can you explain what you're talking about? Like the idea, like if you have like a what what are they called? The X- Xboxes and the PS fives and the yeah. fours, like those things. Like you have to be in a certain kind of culture and be like kind of know all the codes already, the secret handshakes of how the mechanics work because they're very. It's not going to teach you how to use the thing. Nintendo things design games and objects that teach you how to use the object so it becomes super intuitive which is lovely like as a thing because like you as someone who hasn't picked up a controller in 17 years right i'm just like this is hard this is i don't get this uh," and then over time you're just like oh i get how this works now like it just teaches you through using it through gameplay yes how to use the object it almost becomes like an extension of your body your brain pretty work, quickly yeah your your yeah. mind just automatically does the things and you're like huh the same could be said for iphone i mean i think that yeah. was i think that was like apple's primary innovation with their gui in general yeah. like dating back even to before phones but that was their thing is like this is intuitive even to like a six-year-old because like desktop or like file sourcing on an iMac is so much easier than trying to find where the fuck something ended up in a Windows computer. Do you remember when that was difficult? Because I do. Because I was a pretty early like adopter of Apple things, all things considered. Like I had a an iMac in two thousand three, back when like not having a tower for your computer was really weird. And so I do remember having to make the switch from Windows things because they were just ubiquitous in the nineties. It was the yeah. only thing. It of. is harder to search a file, but like. The thing is, it's not. It's just that once you get adjusted to, okay, some things are on the left and some things are on the right. Like, I remember that being the major transition, is that, like, on Windows computers, um, the, like, 
God, I don't even remember what it's called. Is it the start button? Yeah, it's the start button. That's down in the bottom left? Yeah. Like, okay, now that's in the upper left. Oh, right? It's yeah. like things as simple as that, but that really throws you off at first. But now when you go back to the other thing, you're like... It's so hard. Oh, it's in the upper left because that's where it should be. It's very... Like, because I always use the Apple things at the at whatever school location. And then at home, I would have my terrible uh windows product that right everybody loved the apple computers like at the school library i remember there was only like three or four of those colored imacs and everybody would like beeline for that shit mostly i'm talking about snood college and stuff like that oh okay yeah the the euclid public library did not have any apple products thank you very much Mm -hmm. they still don't i think you still have to you have to reserve times for them still because they still only have 12 of them right and like you know neighbor steve is just using it to print out porn i don't know um but like so the switching back and forth i was like yeah i get it it's not hard but like now to go to studio computer which is a windows computer using the like terribleness that is like windows the new one like xp or whatever the fuck right like this is trash i don't this is trying to be a mobile device and i don't understand what's going on because it's designed for touch screens (laughs) <laughs> right 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 yeah. like touchscreen laptops yeah, and I'm like right. uh it's not and then half the time the fucking mouse pad doesn't work i'm like can we make this like a decent object and they're like no deal with it well yeah right like sort of back to the nintendo versus playstation or xbox type of thing like yeah the xbox and playstations are for experienced gamers like they kind of rested on a default setup for what their controllers look like and what the gameplay is like and it is really good for what it's supposed to function as but it's not going to teach you you already have to know you had to have played halo 2 or whatever for yeah. hundreds of hours when you were a teenager for that to make any sense to you cuz it's just faster yeah and it's like uh i don't know how to uh, 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 like it's too hard like my brain don't work that fast well anymore. i understand i understand why somebody like a gamer would be averse to it cuz things like this happen in sports a lot like there's not that many innovations in the baseball bat right or like in a skateboard it's basically the same thing it's never not going to be made out of wood right like that's just the property of it it has a certain response. You kind of can't overcome that with technology. And I think that, like, PlayStation and Xbox have sort of landed on the same plane where, like, yeah, you can make improvements in graphics, but improvements in gameplay or whatever, no. Like, that's just locked in now. But Nintendo is like, well, we're not here to provide equipment for a sport. We're here to game provide in a, a more profound way. Yeah. yeah. Like that, like, which is, goes back to the thing of like, the fuck is this glossy lozenge that I'm going to lose? Like, the AirPod case, yeah. This, this doesn't actually, like, oh, you made it wireless chargy. Okay, cool. But like, am I going to remember to even put it on the little wireless chargy dock half the time? Uh, no. Like, there's no even like blinker for like, hey, by the way, like, you should charge me. Right. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, what I'm trying to get at here is that I think you're a little ac- across purposes with your criticism. Well, yeah. Like, I think you're criticizing the Apple thing because it doesn't have the standardization and utility that you would like it to have because you use it every day. Yeah. But it does look really good. So, like, where is yeah. where is that line for you? Like, when does that end up mattering? I mean, we had this argument famously about glassware. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, if it was slatted and made out of wood, I would appreciate it even more. But it can't do that. Well, here's here's my theory about why the Apple things are all um, shaped like 
bars of soap now is because they assume case usage. Oh, but because that's if terrible. you have a silicon case on it, then it can be wood grain or whatever. You get your aesthetic that you want, and it becomes more usable. I think what they've done as a turn in their design is not innovate on that level anymore. Because what, just they, so you can like add on a twenty dollar add-on, they assume that the, that everybody's going to add something on, which most people do. I hate doing that though. I only put a case on mine because I broke the back of it. Right. Which also, why is it glass? Why did we go back to glass? Did I ever show you what my uh, my iPhone four looks like? I, I you you didn't, but I but I saw an intellectuals post today of an iPhone five. I think that was cracked to such an extent that it looked like um, the surface of the ocean. Oh Jesus! <laughs> it it's not bad. Uh, no, like my five and my SE were fine. Like those, I took care of. But the four with the double double glass, oh, oh, bitch, it was it was not pretty. Well, you got to suffer for fashion, man. That's that's what I'm getting at here. Is that like I, I don't know with with certain high value things in my life, I flip from your perspective. I think you want the high value things in your life to have utility. Yeah. In my case, I want them to have utility, but I'm more willing to make um, allowances for just flashy design and like materials choices. Huh. And then take care of it. But this goes but back. But on to... the other hand, on <sighs> lower end things, I would rather the thing just work, and I don't really care what it looks like. This is going back to what we were talking about earlier in, in the day, where I was like, you know, because I was talking about like, it, you know, it'd be really nice to have a Hastings bed or a Hustons bed, whatever the fuck they're called. Right. For those that aren't familiar with that, that's fifteen a bed, bed in the range of anywhere from five grand to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> Yes, please and thank you. Um, king of Denmark, King of Sweden, one of the kings of the Nordic country sleeps on one. So, like, obviously, it's good enough for a it's king. For Viking royalty. Hey. Um, no, oh, don't call yourself of, that. You're, know, from, you're from the people. valleys of Slovenia and the slums of Ireland. You're trash. Yeah, so, like... And I, as a Roman, despise you. <laughs> so you get, like, you know, a slab of marble, and I get... A sack of potatoes to sleep on. Yeah, it's fine. yeah, yeah. That's about um, right, actually. Yeah. But, like, we were talking about how Levi's could just be, like, the idea that, like, if you were rich or you are poor, you both agreed that this was a well-made object and this was the epitome of an, uh, an object, right? Right. Andy Warhol said that uh, you and the Queen both drink Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. I mean, per- like, perfect. Like, the idea that, like, Something even, like, lowbrow can be the idealized form of something. Yeah, yeah. This is a very interesting idea. Like, you know, and a Levi for a time, for a spell, was the epitome of a a denim. I'm going to say it like a fashion fad because I am. So, like, whether you were super... If you were Ralph Lauren or you were literally a gold digger, you wore Levi's, right? Right. But then there's a, a turn where, like, mm, what were we, ta- we were talking about, like, maybe we want something more expensive, the luxurious version of the thing, but it has less practical value, which... Can I give you the example that I gave you earlier today? Uh-huh. Just bear with me for a second. But I think the uh, epitome of this was uh, I heard a comparison between the French Laundry, which is an upscale restaurant in California. Everyone knows what French Laundry is. I, well, I don't know. I didn't know until a couple years ago. And Taco Bell. And the person that I was listening to was saying that they compared the 
ingredient list of both of the restaurants in question, and they didn't share a single ingredient in common down to the salt. Now, that's what really blew my mind, because think about that. Not even the salt is in common anymore with upper class and lower class, basically. And we were talking about, back to your point, the distinction between like using pink Himalayan sea salt and Morton's salt. The quality difference between the two things is marginal, and the price point of the two things is extreme. For like salt. Like 10x. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, this applies to any other product. Yeah. Designed or otherwise. I mean, granted, like, the weird thing is, like, this is why, like, I was thinking about this, like, French Laundry and any sort of Thomas Keller level experience is more so about the, like, truly about the epitome of the kind of food it can be, right? Like, yeah. if you're going to have fried chicken... It's going to be the best kind of fried chicken. But does is does that make it the most interesting fried chicken? No. Because, well, okay. like, I Go feel ahead. like people like Wiley Dufresne or someone like Dave Chang or, like, any of the, Alex Stupak or something like that who are, like, doing weird hybrid things, like, they would care more about, like, the weird shit that's in, like, cock gun nacho cheese and try and el- turn that into something elevated and kind of push the process forward versus like, let me just do perfect whatever. Gem lettuce, well, Cobb that, salad that, or That's the, the thing, fuck. right? Like the example of fried chicken is really good because the ideal fried chicken yeah. has nothing to do with the quality of ingredients. In fact, the ideal fried chicken probably requires cheap construction. You could elevate the technique, certainly. Yeah. But what goes into it need not be... Fancy. I think of that as being, you know, Thomas Keller fried chicken or whatever, as being merely decadent. Yeah. There's really nothing about that that is even fried chicken. You've kind of just made something else entirely, like almost categorically a different thing. Well, weirdly, like you've taken this beautiful, like farm range free, farm raised free range organic fed bird and shat on it. By, uh, yeah. by soaking it in like a buttermilk brine for a day and then just frying the shit out of it. Like that's not truly showing off the like the the terroir, terroir the French. Sure. What is substantial or about the thing itself. interesting yeah. about that ingredient. Right. Yeah. I'm with you there. That's a good point. Um, I was kind of thinking in a different direction, though, that you've also sort of shit on the concept of platonic fried chicken. What? How? Fried chicken in its ideal state is not an organic chicken. Like, that's not where that dish came from. Mm-hmm. So by even starting with the premise of that high-quality ingredient, you've already corrupted the concept. Well, you've missed the point. Yes, exactly. Like, yes. it's kind of like the best fried chicken is enjoyed at a picnic table with a glass of cold lemonade and, like, just a dab of, like, butter. or I don't know. Like, it's just something sure. that, like... It's or greasy dude, all... and, like, you're getting sun-kissed and, like, whatever. Or, you know, all... that's true, but alternatively, or it's best enjoyed from Popeye's on a, like, shitty potato bun. Like, on yeah. a, like honestly, that's closer to the idea of what fried chicken is Yeah. than Thomas Keller's, like, highfalutin variation on it. Yeah, I mean, truly, like, all the, like, southern, like, actual southern fried chicken places are like no this is just this is it we use a giant pressure cooker 
and it's delicious and sit down. Yeah, and it has it has everything to do with where the cultural focus is at any moment. And th- this is kind of how our conversation came up earlier today was that like when you think about the United States of America being organized more like a caste system a la mm-hmm. India than what we think of now as like a meritocracy or like a middle class based society, it's yeah, really no. not. Yeah. And if the focus is off the middle class or I guess in the example of fried chicken, frankly, it's off the lower class. Like when you take attention off that um, axiom, now suddenly you have just have something else. You don't have the concept anymore. Well, this is going back to the Levi's thing. I we were talking about like the eighties or something like that, and I was thinking like later, like do you remember like in the eighties when it was like you have to have the name brand basic object? Yes. Like think of Lacoste polos. What makes a Lacoste polo a hundred dollars? Simply the alligator. A fucking alligator. It's not good cotton. No. It's not made particularly well. It's still made by, like, small children. And, you know, they have to have little hands to use that. uh... Actually, no, that's automated anymore. So That tiny embroidery. The embroidery is just, like, one button, and then a machine just goes, like, So, like, the cost ostensibly should go down. That should be a cheaper object writ large. But you're paying for the identity behind, which then skews. When you're paying for an... Uh, abstraction of what good is, yes. it, the price goes up. It, yeah, exactly. You're right. Which is trash. Like, the, that doesn't make sense. But, uh, I mean, that makes art, right? Um, Abstracted value from... Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that, that, makes, that makes art in our current situation, right? Because yeah. art has become basically just a financial device that is yeah. the image of art. Um, But this is what our culture has become, is been... Uh, it's been bastardized into the buying of images rather than of anything substantial at all. Yeah. Like the the idealism of concepts has been lost. It's really Rococo when you think about it. Like we're much more into ornamentation now and variation than mm-hmm. we are into like fundamental stylistic difference. Yeah. But we like things to be the like if you buy stocks in one person's work you want them to crank out the same shit, right? Like, you don't want to have, like, a weird one? Of course, but what you're buying in that quote-unquote style is the image of authenticity and originality rather than buying authenticity and originality itself, which might Mm. require stylistic variation. Or Uh even if it doesn't, it requires some sort of fortitude or will on the other side from the artist that backs up the brand. But Mm. most artists now are just brands. I guess that's right. I mean... Yeah, like really think about it. I mean, it, it, it's it's not even really their fault. It's just that they're incentivized to do a thing because they want to stay rich. You know, that's true. Um, huh. Well, look, I don't I don't want to be depressing about it because we've been over like the economics a million yeah. times. You know, but the uh, the idea of well, I don't know. Let me just try to riff this out. Like, I, like I'm trying to formulate a question for you along the lines of like, how do you think this happened? Right. Setting aside, setting aside obvious like market forces, market stuff. Mm. Like, what do you think it is about American culture or art culture more generally that led in this direction? I have kind of a hunch, but I want to hear what you think. What direction? Led in the direction of basically arts, art, artists becoming um, images of themselves. Well, much it, like we were discussing with food. Uh, it, it's kind of like that thing where like. 
When did baseball card collecting begin? Uh, like in the fifties or the forties? You know, probably probably after World War II. Although there were baseball cards a long time before that, but they were not thought of as valuable. So probably yeah. sometime post war. Yeah. But I'm wondering if like an era of people in the sixties who grew up collecting trading cards then got rich and then were like, I need a new kind of trading card because that was a value system I can understand. Um, so that, and it follows in that track of like, I need this kind of rookie card of this team or whatever. So like you find your team and then you find, you know, multiples of that or whatever. That's, that's a really nice analogy actually. And I think you're right. Like basically that, um, cause that conditioned people like that kind of trading and shit like that. Sure. Essentially conditioned people who grew up to horse trade in the same way. Of course. Like, like, you know. I want to be clear that I'm probably conflating a lot of things, and I realize that this is overgeneral. But mm. modern art, created with a certain amount of authenticity from the artistic side, eventually became a commodity, just due to forces, right? And then what you just laid out with the baseball card analogy makes a lot of sense in terms of collectors, because they get used to a certain type of structure. You have the up-and-coming artist, you have the mid-tier, you have the high-tier, right? And they want to maintain that. So that makes yeah. sense from a collector's perspective, but yeah. I'm interested in like the moment when artists sort of gave into that or forgot that that's what was going on. When everybody was poor and in debt, you know. But you that just kind of go. Okay. But hasn't that been the case since at least like the, 40s, the, the collapse yeah. of the aristocracy at the end of the 19th century? Yeah, like that's been the case since World War One because when you don't have hereditary money like propping up your art practice, although it does for a lot of people still. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the up-and-coming artists, that's not always true. Um, that's always been the case. So I don't think but that like, that explains think about it. even like terrible example, but like think about a Picasso where it's like no one, you know, like there's a lot of periods of Picasso. People are like, I'm not touching that shit. Like I'm not. I don't want that like fascist Picasso shit. Like, no, thank you. Even though they're they're weirder objects, and you're talking about like late Picasso paintings or what? Mm, no, those are also bad. Like plates and stuff like that. Even people are like, I don't. We don't regard those. But I think they're kind of sure. cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though I think they're bad, like they're kitsch, and I'm like, that's interesting. Um, but like, the, uh, I'm talking like for, like late 30s, 40s Picasso, like the Guernica era. I'm not sure what you mean. No, there was a... Do you remember the the fascist Picasso show at the no. Guggenheim? Oh, uh, the black and white show? No. No, then I don't. Okay. Well, there was an era where it was very, like, Roman heads. Oh, Like statues oh, okay. and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, where yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. Mm, I know what you these mean. These are you're, a little... You're, conf- you're just confusing me with the term fascist. Yeah, I don't know I underst- the word. Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're talking about. In terms of time period, historically, not... Right, I gotcha. He was feeling his Bowie, like... SS yeah, no, no, no. There was a certain period of Picasso's work where he sort of merged that like neoclassical 1920s phase of like the really heavy, overpainted figures with his cubism style. Yeah. Yes, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. Okay. And they're just odd objects. Yeah. Like they don't make sense. They're not particularly like compositionally that interesting necessarily, but as objects, they're odd. Sure. But no one wants to have that deck. Museums have them because they're like, well, I guess we should, but. Well, Picasso just has such a cultural presence and is such like an overarching force generally that every period of time of his is interesting regardless of quality, right? Like, there's just no denying that. But, like, no one wants a bad interesting. 
you know, I a be- may, okay, scare quotes okay, bad. Continue. I'll take the point for now. Does sure. that make sense? Yeah. Where it's like, uh, we could, but uh, no one else wants it, so I don't want it either. Uh-huh. I have nothing to gain by. That's back to the question of taste. Yeah, yeah. Um, forgot where I was going with. That. Well, I was trying to I draw. I was trying to draw out the difference between the baseball card analogy, which I thought was yeah. good on the collector side, but what happened with artists, right? Like, oh, yeah. At, at what point did they start to abandon the idea of doing anything interesting or authentic for? Oh, I think basically that... just making variations okay, on pre-existing okay, styles. It. Yeah. So, like, given the Picasso thing, like, you know, when you read criticism of, like, and then it shifted and it was bad. And then you have someone like a, a Clemmy going, like, yeah, fuck those. And you're like, oh, I guess we won't do that anymore. And then even, like, late 60s, 70s criticism was also a little judgy of, like, this was bad. This period was bad. Because even, like, sure. Judd is the worst, most aggressive critic of going, like, ah, oh, they're fine, but bad. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, I was doing a lot of reading in the old art and theory brick of a book mm. um, from this era and watching like lectures that Greenberg gave and stuff yeah. in his later days when they were recording them. Um, but it's because people used to tie taste and ethics in a way that I don't think people do anymore. Oh, yeah, no. So that's maybe an interesting thread is like ju- judgment um, was a way of expressing your moral philosophy and it mm. was not simply a matter of um, superficial taste. Taste actually meant something about your character yeah. and, by extension, the artist's character or the collector's character. But we lost that somewhere. And it, this is an interesting point to me because I wonder if it's criticism that's missing. Actually. Parts of those things are good. Parts of those things are bad. Because like, if you're just like, mm, this is bad, like, you know, like there's a lot of exclusion, you know, even though you have... Did he prop up uh, Helen Frankenthaler or no? Or who, was he a little antagonistic? And she was like, he's an asshole. No, no, no. Um, he he was very transparent about the idea that Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland and these other sort of second generation abstract expressionists basically took it from Frankenthaler. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I, 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 I feel like there was some kind of story. Oh, it's, uh, what's her face? Janet Sobel? Right. Do you remember like her and then him telling... Jackson Pock, like, hey, you should uh, just do these, but bigger. He's like, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, sure. Like, you know, like, that's a terrible thing to just sweep under the rug. So, like, that that critical criticism critique started entering the picture where you started, like, picking apart the giants of the past. And it's like, well, fair. Sure. But what's the new thing? What's your new position? Or, or are we just saying what we ended up doing was just sweeping the whole thing under the rug and going like, no, there's no such thing as good or bad. It just is. Yeah. That's a, I think that's exactly what happened. Um, the idea of exclusion is very interesting to me and I think is a very underrated thing. Um, in general, when it comes to theory at large, but especially in art, when we decided that progress was over and there was nothing but sort of reflexive critique of what already happened then of course it's going to end up in sort of... But that can let malevolent forces in. Uh, What can? Like saying that there is no good or bad. Of course, that's what I'm going Because then it can just kind of be manipulated where it's like, oh yeah, what is this? Well, it's not... We can't say it's good or bad, so it's just... Like you can do the... Well, it's sort of... The press release acrobatics of saying that it's valid 
or yeah. that because it is a thing in the world and you're like, well, d- you're did valid. It I see you. I hear you. I feel you. Yeah, yeah. This is not Oprah. Like art world is not Oprah. I'm so sorry. Like, well, you're right. I mean, it, it, I was trying to avoid it initially, but it is back to the market forces of ultimately it makes it easier for capital to do its thing with art rather than art have any say in the matter. Because now yeah. there's nothing but superficiality, so it makes anything marketable. But this also, this there's a turn in this because in that, like, once that idea of, like, zombie formalism got codified and crystallized as a name, sure, then the pump and dumping stopped. Or just that, anything branded as that got pumped and dumped. Or the dumping began... Post haste. You know, that's interesting, but that had nothing to do with the quality of the work. And, you know, I don't. Who wrote the zombie formalism uh, article? Uh, Walter Robinson coined it. Right. Which I actually. Are questionable. I actually doubt that that was coined in a pejorative spirit. It was. Well, I don't know. I, I bet it was just a description of what was going on. And if that critic's assessment of the matter was that it's ultimately of bad quality that's one thing Mm -hmm. but really it was just a good description of what was actually happening everything kind of but i don't think that the market was responding to the good criticism it was responding to the marketing well the well any owners were like oh it's bad sell it now no one's gonna want this because you know we read the whatever the fuck some advisor was like you need to get rid of it now right there's a, there's a couple articles, and it's all bad. We need to get rid of this before it hits the, the stock of this too much. Before the value sinks too low, get rid of it now. Sure. Like, and that ruined people. That's true. Um, but it's interesting to me that the artists and the collectors are sort of not a part of that equation. Like, basically, that the critic, in that case, and the advisors were the ones that set the tone for everybody else. Well, critic- like why were why were there no zombie formalist artists that stood up for themselves and, you know, wrote an open letter to the same publication that published Walter Robinson and said, "Hey, listen. Like this is actually why my work is valid and good. Yeah. If the market's going to abandon me, so be it, but like here's my project." Mm. Nobody did that. And at the same time, no collector was like, hey, you know what? I, I like actually these, like yeah. this stuff anyway, which I'm sure a lot of them actually did. Yeah. Uh, it's too... Ri- I don't know. That I don't know. I do think, like, on a collector thing, you don't want to be the person, like, left holding the bag. Well, Like, I, the last one with the thing, know, because then you're like... Because they're all friends, and like, oh, you sit alone. Of what? course. Huh. They, they might take... They Pedestrian. Might, sure. They might take, like, a social and market capital hit yeah you know with all this talk about responsible collecting right like that was sean kelly's whole podcast that we covered on oh, a very so... early episode of this or whatever like Did that ever get released i'm not sure i don't think so. maybe maybe mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. um but you know we talked about that and that is a dialogue amongst the elites and the collector yeah. classes like how do you res- collect responsibly how are you a responsible gallerist or like you know capitalist of art right where are the people that are at the dinner party that are like, yeah, I know you guys don't like this, but like, you're wrong. And I still like it. And I'm, yeah, I'm losing money on it, but I'm still going to buy it. Well, the the funny part is like, while this great sell-off was happening and people were getting like crashing and burning left and right, like it was 2008 again with the like Gilded and Grayskull people. Yeah. 
everybody starts snapping up causes left and right. And you're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Right, right, right. You just went for the only worst thing in the world. You found the (laughs) the dumbest thing and were like, pump it. Like, you're like, I don't know. I thought I could get behind like a Lucian Smith, but I guess, uh, give me Sesame Street. I know Sesame Street. Right, right. Well, it's back to the issue of taste and what it says about people's character. Like, that's why I think the conversation around taste needs to revert to some idea of, like, moral judgment. Because if zombie formalism is not good enough for you and is not tasteful enough for you, but then you run to the lowest common denominator pop art, well, then who cares about what you think is good? Yeah, no one should give a shit. Like, every artist should stop giving a fuck. I Well, most people don't care about that particular world. Right, that's the thing. We just speculate wildly on it because it's like... the caste system idea, right? It's like truly like actual art is being made in the lower castes. Yeah, but like no one's buying in a middle or low. Or they are buying low just because you can buy $2,000 from a PDF and not feel like, you know, the hit of that. But there's nothing in that middle ground between two to, let's say, $30,000 if you're super rich. Yeah, I think that's right. And then the next stop is $250,000. And you're like, uh, what about the 50K? What about the $80,000? Well, there's no taste being manufactured, right? Like, in terms of production, Mm. how can you create taste in an environment like that? You can't because you have people on the factory floor that are actually producing like art commodities. Mm -hmm. And then you have, um, people that are importing them somewhere else but Don't you have talk nobody about my gnome that way but you have nobody shipping anything oh. I... and in fact the owners of the factories are not doing a very good job of like marketing the good commodities well because you just want to stay afloat of course the like, precarity is too much well it's it's not even it's not even really pre- precarity it's just the incentives make a ton of sense you would rather sell the high value thing that is already established than sink any more money into untested water anything untested sure but there used to be a will for that yeah you know that was the entire project there well as a sidebar but also accompaniment to this like i was reading something uh francesco i think it was francesco bonami was saying like it was like what are people gonna do with like art like the venice biennale pushed off a year what are we gonna do and he's like i don't know this whole thing is kind of a hot mess like he was saying there's a line that says like uh Alana Sonneban and Leo Castelli had a staff almost their entire time some business of eight to ten people and now there's galleries with forty people. That was always gonna be an untenuous thing. And I'm like, Yeah, because Sonneban and Castelli never had to do Basel and Freeze. That's true. And Lista and Basel Miami and then Arco and whatever the fuck. Right, right. Like you need forty people to ship the shit. 12 times a year that's a really interesting insight too and i I wonder what was different in the costelli and sonabend mindset like they were not trying to expand their business geometrically that is they were not trying to get 10x in vc terms Mm. on their investment right like that was never the idea the idea would be basically you make a marginal profit on what you believe in and if you do expand your business to a second location or something that's arithmetic meaning you've added one plus one equals two rather than one times two yeah etc etc well the idea also was placement yeah yes 
like this is why you have the Panza collection as being the minimalist collection par excellence because they wanted to place it in a place that was not going anywhere. Right. Because those are easy objects to assign arbitrary value to that you could flip. Like in an era of time, you could horse trade those all day long because who cares? It's just parts that you ship back and forth. Yuck. But there were no hundred thousand heirs in the same manner. Or the hundred thousand heirs were actually millionaires that we or billionaires that we would talk now. Right, right, right. Like millionaires were are now billionaires. Exactly. Uh inflation wise. So like but if you sold to a millionaire, you knew it was going to stay with the family. There was not going to be a flip. Once you get into like these petty transactions to people who don't know what to do with money, who buy a Tesla truck. Yep. They don't they don't care about where things go. They care about how things go. Exactly. And how they can profit. Yep. They're 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 treating it much like all of our financial crises like a mortgage backed security. Like it's just another thing that is bundled together with a bunch of other things. That's so status I buy... associated but also but you also know, free, monetarily free monetary, associated, yeah. like in the aggregate, I'm going to profit off my five or six investments from this gallery. Maybe only one of them is worth a million dollars. So I'll spend the $30,000 on the five other things yeah. and take that loss to get the net gain. But you're treating everything like that. Well, because most galleries, if you want the prize pony, you have to buy a little bit of something from everybody else before you get the prize uh, pony. Yeah, that's how you get your foot in the door. Yeah. Oh, no, there. There are things where, like, oh, you want X? Well, you have to buy Y, Z, and A, A, and B, B. Well, I can tell you that there's less of that than you would imagine, and that, in fact, it works the other way around. That, Hmm. like, a collector wants to ingratiate themselves with a gallerist so that they have a shot at the prized thing, so they will buy the lower-end stuff as a way to get get access to a Jeff Koons. Yeah, that's if you're dealing with someone with some semblance of old school class and manners uh, n- no i don't think so i think that there are the old some... school class and manners have just carried over as a manner of tradition like i don't know if that's necessarily required but it's the way there are stories where oh you want x well because this is the same thing like think about what happened at foyer like oh you want a dana well you got to buy two drawings one of them's got to go here Sure, sure. You don't sure. like, you know, we know that that happened, but there's also other stories where it's like, oh, you want prize pony sculptor? Well, you need to buy some works on paper from this person because we need to pay them. Um, and I have like rent due. So, like, you have to buy a couple other things and then we can let you talk. We can talk about you buying that. Right, right. Like, truly, just like it's pay to play in a different manner. Sure. In the same way that we're, I was asking you, like, is this idea of like the Hopper Prize where I pay $40 to maybe get a thousand? You're like, it's a Ponzi scheme, you dumbass. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's a different kind. It's a lower tier ga- shell game, but it's still that. You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Because all, all, all of those Ponzi schemes just trickle up. It's exactly the same everywhere. So basically, Art World is Herbalife? Yeah, it, it 100% is. Oh. But actually, it, this is a good segue, actually, because I want to. I want to get more grounded again. It's like, it's never, you know, on one hand, it's really interesting to gossip about this stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's never very interesting because it's such. Because we can never such, say names. Well, no, um, no, no, no. It's not that. It's just that it's so banal. Mm-hmm. Like, all of these things are so obvious. Yeah. That there's really no reason to talk about it. I know, but. It's it, fascinating on a gossip level, but it's never, um, 
It doesn't sustain me conversationally. No, no, but, and that's fair, but like, it's like all those things that's like, I wish someone would have just had this conversation when I was going deeply into debt about yeah, yeah, yeah. A thing, and it's like, ugh, come on. Like, well, no I, one knew? No. No one had an inkling that this was just a Ponzi scheme? Well, or they is, did, but they're like, well, we got to keep our bills paying, too. It, exactly. This is fascinating, right? Because that same ethic then infects everything, including academia. Yeah. And, like, the major regret I had about, like, my teachers or, you know, my education was that... Instead of having a professional practices class where you learn to make a website, which every millennial already knew how to do anyway. I want, there should be a scared straight. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Like, you think you have what it takes? Do you have the stomach to put up with hundreds of years of oligarchy? <laughs> fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With your too tight girl jeans on a boy and your bangs <laughs> in your eyes. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Yeah, they should bring in a six foot seven neo Nazi that just yells at you about <laughs> how you're going to get financially raped by academia in the back room of a gallery eventually. No, just bring me in with sunglasses and a pack of cigarettes and one spotlight overhead going, I had hair before I started. Dude, this. Re remember when Do we. You see what I am. Remember when we were uh, summoned to give a lecture at our undergrad? While we were in grad school. That's so dumb. And I fucked up the PowerPoint and we just didn't have one. Yeah. So we basically just did this podcast. That was kind of the first episode of this podcast in a weird way. Back I in looked, 2011. When I whatever. looked at you and went, you didn't save it? You didn't save that one? Well, I had, I brought, no, listen, I brought two different flash drives. I saved it in a couple different ways. Like it was, I was trying to be as prepared as I could and it still didn't work. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, also I was like completely drunk all the time. What else is new? Well, yeah. I mean, that would have been a good opportunity to be like, listen, fuckers, get ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We but, kind of did that. If, if You know, if memory serves, it was sort of like, because we were there to deliver a lecture about what what are the benefits of grad school? What is the we were like, eh, purpose of this? Maybe you should go. I don't know. And I think we, but yeah, I mean, actually, earnestly, I think we were both kind of like, I don't know. If you are looking for a way out of your circumstance, do it. But don't but pay. it's expensive. Yeah. yeah don't do it. <laughs> Never pay for it and go. Yeah. Go if you want to. Um, do you want to not pay back your student loans? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> right. Um, can I can I return to the idea of hereditary? Not the horror movie. Yeah, I was like, what? Um, but I actually think that's a primary insight. That like the the civilizational transition from hereditary wealth to like most wealth being kind of nouveau riche is mm. really throwing everybody for a loop right now. Art or otherwise. I think that's a really different thing. That sort of never happened before. Like, elites and oligarchs have always been families, and now it can kind of be anybody. Now you can be, like, a lawyer and be, like, right. very wealthy. And it's like, yep. you are a service You are a service professional in the same way I am. Well, but you, you can't be a lawyer and be very wealthy. You can be a lawyer and be very mm. wealthy by our standard, but a lawyer compared to a billionaire is yeah, greater yeah, than yeah. the difference between you and the highest paid lawyer on the planet. I guess. And they yeah. see themselves that way. Like what I'm trying to get at is that I think that like the middle class has sort of been redefined because the upper class is not about family anymore. It's just about sheer accumulation. 
So I think that people that we would think of as spectacularly wealthy think of themselves as middle class. And I've really been thinking about this a lot. Well, yeah, and that, like, anxiety shows in their actions. Yes, exactly right. Duh, because, like, it it becomes this thing where it's like, well, I'm not as rich as my boss. And it's like, well, yeah, it's because your boss is making $200,000 more than you. What the fuck is wrong with you? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the idea that their jobs are not actually productive. Like, where the American middle class, to just bring it closer to home, that's what I can speak to. The American middle class used to be jobs of laborers and producers, right? Like you worked on a factory floor and you actually made a thing that you could see happen. Or you own your own business, but it was sure. small. Small businesses and entrepreneurs are a part of this. Yeah. But now the burgeoning new middle class, by which I mean basically millionaires. Hundred thousanders. Uh I don't even think so. I think I think basically millionaires. Hmm. Um they do not do productive jobs. Yeah. They do service industry jobs in one way or another. Like, I think even lawyers and doctors qualify there. Oh, there is an insurance agent that makes a million dollars a year. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, so, you just hustle off of richer people than you. When the when the focus of the middle class is on people that are doing sort of non-jobs, it's or, not that their jobs are useless. Or they're grifting. Well, hold on. It's not that their jobs are useless. It's like they're productive in a certain way, but they're certainly service industry people, right? Yeah. They don't have a direct connection to the classes below them or the classes above them. So they envy the classes above them in the same sense that a, you know, 20th century middle class person would have. And at the same time, they have no connection to the lower class at all that actually produce things or just do lesser service industry jobs, Mm. which is more of the case but the point being that they're sort of isolated they look at billionaires and they say that's unattainable to me and they look at the lower classes and they say like that is nothing like my life yeah that didn't used to be the case like the middle class used to be close enough to the lower class to have some sympathy for it and close enough to the higher class to have aspirations for it yeah and now you have neither condition yeah that's what i'm saying even about like middle tier gallery like there's no middle no no the myth of well, the middle it's is... Because, it's because the middle people are wealthy enough that they think that they can participate in high culture. Oh, they can't. They can't do that. But so the middle class people that have the entire stranglehold on the culture, like the New York Times is pandering to people that make two and a half million dollars a year. That mm-hmm. is the audience for it. Same with the Washington Post and the LA Times and like everything in the media, right? I don't know who... I was reading a, a Washington Post... The other day, and I was like, who is this actually for? Like, I was confused. Well, I'm telling you. like this it, is... it seemed for no one. And I went, wow. Dude, this is my theory, is that it is for this relatively small group of people. Or a mythical person. I, yeah, there's a lot of borderline fan fiction. But, like, you know, this is, a, this, is a cor- this is a constant joke on liberals, right? Is that, like, you constantly reference Harry Potter and Marvel movies and other things like this because you don't have a connection to your bosses, nor do you have a connection to actual working-class people. Hmm. So what do you do? You retreat to cape shit and Harry Potter as a way to contextualize what you're feeling. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. Those are, I mean, this is why I don't think it's million. I think it's the 750,000 dares. 
Because I think the million dollar status is still in the American mind. If you're a millionaire, you're fucking loaded. You, you know, and I, we know we're like, oh, you know, well, it really. depends. No, no, no. I, I, I think you're, you're rich, but I think rich. that boomers and silent generation people still think that. Well, like, which is why they're so delusional. But, but also, like, it depends where you live. Oh, a person yeah. that makes seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in Manhattan is not really even middle class if they have a family of four. Uh, if you have a family of four, you shouldn't live in Manhattan. Well, listen, I know that that's like an arbitrary metric or whatever, yeah. but that's been the one yeah. for our entire lives for the twentieth century. Yeah. Is a nuclear family, and if you think about that in terms of one income earner and seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, like you're not really left with that much at the end of that. Yes, no, you yeah. do have a nice apartment and a car. You and live stuff. in a better neighborhood sure, and maybe sure, have sure. two houses. But, you have an apartment but and then a That city, used yeah. to be what middle class was. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is still on television. Unbelievable. And it should have a question mark at the end of it at this point. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Well, yeah. Like, I, ugh. I mean, when you think about retirement figures, like what you That's actually disgusting. need to be able to retire, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of like $5 million at this point. To live a lifestyle where you're only spending 30 to 40K a year, which is like not a lot of money at all. Like you're living in poverty in your retirement with that much capital. And well, not capital, just money. Yeah, the idea that who wants to be a millionaire is on TV, it should be who wants to be a billionaire. Yeah, but you can't give away a billion dollars. Truly, well, well, except that you you can could yeah. Well, that's why even like prize money on like a a television show being ten thousand dollars, you're like, what? After taxes, that's six grand. The fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, you can't even buy a Hyundai Sonata. No, you can get for the price of winning that show. You can get a Kia. You want a Kia? A Kia Optima. What? But you don't get power windows. No. Yeah, like like that. But yeah, no heated seats. That's what we've all been left with. Keyed entry only. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't want to be. I want to escape us from this because I'm really trying to make this episode interesting and not depressing. I think um, it's interesting. Is it kind of a downer? Well, you probably already know this, so like it's not yeah, that much of a downer. That We're big just of a deal. you know reinforcing what you know the panic ideas are. Can, can in I your circle head. back like thirty minutes ago? In if the I remember, this is my fourth beverage of the day. Whoa. But I also had steak fritz and a whole liter of seltzer. Okay, okay, okay. No, no, no. I think you're holding it together. I was actually concerned about this because you did your happy hour at like 4.30 in the afternoon. and you See, did... but I measure my cocktails. Well, and you didn't Some get... Some of us do not. I, I know, but you didn't get your nap time today. So I was concerned that Buster Bluth over here was going to get a little <laughs> bit yawny, but you seem okay. So No, no, no. Um, no, I measured out everything, so I'm fine. I, I think... Um, I think when artists split off from making authentic, meaningful work and going into simply branding, and this is n- not a profound concept, but I think that it was Jeff Koons. I was looking at Jeff Koons's early work today. Why? Um, because I actually think Jeff Koons is a pretty good artist up until like 1990-91. He jumped the shark with Made in Heaven. Oh, yeah, duh. Well, actually, you know, I don't think he Even jumped Even those the... are weird. No, I, don't I, know. I think Made in Heaven is pretty good. Made but... in Heaven is the the fascist Picasso. L- let's just say that he stopped being good after that. And he's hung like a horse, too, so like, you know, there's that. Okay. At least those are also just scaled really big. So yeah, we're all gay like... for Koons over here, I guess. Oh, boy. Um, But... 
I, I have to say that, like, I actually think he's a pretty good artist, but that his influence really corrupted everything it, in a really profound way. It was before that. You think so? Think of Painter's Painting. Well, what about Painter's Painting? Larry Poons. No, no, no. Bloated no, 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 motherfucker no, no. going like, yeah, just put that tape well, up. Listen, and you're like, what is this? Listen, those those guys, like... They were told that something is good, so then they cranked out things for a market, and then that market I don't, got the rug pulled out underneath them. I don't think that that's right. I think that they believed in a certain aesthetic because, again, back to Greenberg, it was sort of tied to a moral philosophy. Mm. Like, I th- think... They were also selling well, sure. I, I'm not. I'm not denying that market forces corrupted them in some way. Of yeah. course, they did. Um, but I really do think that even those like last gasp modern artists, because really people like Larry Poons and um, Kenneth Noland are sort of the last example of like the 19th century in a weird way. Ugh. They they really believed that aesthetics and philosophy were a unified field. That you could deal in both things simultaneously and that, like, changes in form in painting represented historical forces as they moved along. And, of course, they lost touch with that. Yeah. But they were doing something that they believed in. Jeff Koons, I think, was kind of—really, it's Warhol— but but in a more profound way, it's Jeff Koons. There's a lot of 80s artists, too, that also did this. That Think of even Marcus Stabi. That might actually be the sure. par excellence. Where it's like, I do this kind of thing, and this is the only kind of thing, and I have a factory of Korean ladies who crank this shit out for me. You know, like doing the brand, but like that bit was distasteful. Yeah, but you don't get that idea epitomized. Uh, it's rough. It's a rough idea. Yeah, it's yeah. not like a diamond. No, 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 no. Jeff Koons made it into a diamond. Yeah. And I think he's a genius for it. Like, I, I genuinely think that Jeff Koons is a very good artist, but with a really bankrupt morality. Yeah, with an asterisk at the end. Um, No, I wouldn't even give him an asterisk. He didn't cheat, but he did change the game. I think that there's a lot of artists that are working now that are famous now or the for the last 20 years or so, hmm. 20, 30 years, that deserve an asterisk that cheated. Jeff Koons didn't cheat. He actually did innovate this. Um, like, you know, there's a lot of forgotten works of his that I think are really good. Like the those, f- those shitty sponge things? Um, no, 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 no. His, his early work is not very good, but it did lead to some really good shit. Like when he started to frame Nike posters... And just say that, like, corporate advertisements are better art than Kenneth Noland. And he timed that perfectly where it was right, Mm. where he was right about that. And to just do a simple act of framing and representing of a ready-made. Like, he got it. He understood where Duchamp was too innocent and the formalists were too serious. And he got right in there and he nailed it. But he fucked it up for everybody else. Because uh, now everybody's in his shadow. I know that's like not a popular opinion. No, that's also that's that seems like a bad take. Really? If, yeah. I, in what sense? I really want to know. Like if you think about the tanks and the vacuums. The basketball tanks. Tanks, vacuums, the sealed objects. By the way, the framed Nike posters were in the same show as the tanks. Yeah, the Chicago show, right? 
but like a lot of even like the Newport ads and the Colt 45 framed things like there's a lot of things that are like have backhanded things according to racing class lines already that are yes. like you know no one was dealing with because it was just it's about advertising and it's like mm, it's how and who are you advertising to that and why are we elevating this as something other because we've never we've never seen it before and it's like you've never opened a jet because you live on you know 72nd and third or whatever well how deeply satirical is that i mean like oh, that's it's, it's not it's not satire it's a little more sinister than that explain it's pointing out to people like you'll never see this so i'm going to show it to you as white man well, and i'm going to make it art in a way that you think is trash like you would I see, a- a- I acknowledge a- it as trash on the everyday but i have a different read on that which is i'm not showing it to you as white man i'm showing it to you as artist you're never going to see this Ever. because you're white and rich i'm going to show it to you because your class position is different than the people that normally absorb this. And that is actually what art is about. Uh, no. I mean a likey. They only, they only look exotic or interesting as art objects if you've never seen them before. And that has mm. nothing to do with the identity of the artist presenting that. But that's what I mean. There's something... There's, they're weird black holes of like cynicism. They're very cynical. Yes, like that, I think that's that maybe level... maybe that's the word. not sinister, but cynical. Like yeah, that, of course. That's the circle where I was like, "There's something about it that's just like, fuck you, fuck everybody, fuck where I pulled this from. Uh, let me get mine. As long as I get mine." Well, I think no, no, no. I think it's which I think has it's been much. His I think it's by. much more. I think it is about getting his or whatever. But I think that's a superficial like assessment. I think it was his project was very precise in the early days about how and when to choose to do that. And I think like a reevaluation of Jeff Koons's early work along lines of identity politics would be really interesting. Cause I think he was really early on the idea of pointing out that like your wokeness is meaningless, that you, your, you are exoticizing things of a lower class than you because you're not familiar with them. So it's a Hennessy ad. Or it's a Nike campaign or whatever. But his cynicism comes from the idea that like corporations do this better than we can. Like that's where I resent Jeff Koons. I think he's a actually a really good cultural commentator, but that his appreciation for the overlords are better at this. Designers and graphic designers and advertisers are the epitome of communication. His giving in to that is what I resent, not his politics. Well, because they didn't do anything with it. It's just caving. Like, they do it better, so I'm just going to take it from them. Well, like, but you could have done something. But you could say that same thing about Marcel Duchamp, and nobody says that. But bottle rack. Like, like it, no, was the, those, it was the idea of the ready-made. He took it farther. But that's those are displaced objects, not just representing objects. Yeah, but wouldn't you say that the framed Nike posters that all-star black people are represented to their white collector audience? Like, like by your argument, Jeff Koons is a good artist. Mm. I don't get it. No. I think, that's and I, and, not, I, and no. I actually think that there's a hidden dimension to his work, that he was working in a, on a really profound level for the first, like, sort of 10 years of his career. I... I also think that those are like the weakest thing. Like those are the weakest objects. They're just like, ha ha, here's an, 
Like, what the fuck is that? Who cares? Y- you like, know what changed my mind about this? Is that, like, when you see them with 21st century eyes, if they're in his retrospective or whatever, yeah. from seven years ago at the Whitney, you see them and it's like, doesn't have any impact. Um, go look at them in the original spaces they were exhibited in. And then remember that it's 1987. But they're very weird. They were a very weird thing to do. Very severe. That's not weird in the time, though. It's not that weird in the time. In retrospect, it's not that weird in the time. But in the time, it was super weird. Most of the other things going on were either neo trendy neo expressionism or the fallout of formalism or like dry conceptual art. No, it's pictures, Jen. Yeah, but like you, I don't know. I think I think you have a gauzy view of what that felt like. It's a lot of pictures, Jen. You have ham sign, like you have the neo geo beginning. Yeah, but you have to understand that like Coons was lumped in with those guys. Yeah. Jeff Coons and Peter Halley and Ham Steinbach were all like part of the same thing for a while. People were still trying to assemble things in terms of movements and yeah. all that stuff felt really similar because in those spaces and at that time that felt really weird. But it turned out to be really prescient because the Reagan era 80s are much more well defined mm-hmm. by Peter Halley and Jeff Coons and Ham Steinbach than they are by Julian Schnabel and Basquiat and Enzo Kuki. Yeah, well, I think in the last sort case, that's yes probably and, a good thing. Sort of yes and sort of no. Like, the the point is, is that both things are incredibly decadent. All the things. But I like the... All of it. But I decadent. like the so-called Neo Geo stuff more because the decadence is the point. It is actually satire. It's more like Duchamp. But it sold out the idea of Duchamp or John's or later pop art for Capital and not as criticism. That's where the cynicism comes in. Hmm. These characters in the 80s decided, like, actually, this is... Commodity culture doesn't need to be commented on. In fact, irony needs to be absorbed into it. Hmm. And it was sort of the worst kind of betrayal. It's not a betrayal, because it was always bare to begin with, but... Yeah, that's... I mean, that's fair Like, enough. that's... The, I. It's just a matter of, like, well... You know, what's the line? Like, if you want to be employed, you better sell some art. Where are my swimmers at? <laughs> you know, like, where are the swim... There were people who swum and people who sunk due to their own excesses and then had to do their, like, redemption arc. And those people tend to be a little bit more interesting. That's why, like, later or, you know, current Hom Steinbuck is a little bit more interesting because you're like, where the fuck were you? Yeah, he's a very interesting artist, huh. yeah. You know, like, you went away and then you came back. Like, even, like, the resurgence, like, five, four years ago of um, Schnabel, where everyone's like, well, maybe these are good again. Like, remember this Roberta article? It's like, maybe we wrote these off too fast. And you're like, no, ma'am, you were correct. Uh, they're big, though. We can't we can't doubt that they're big. That's well, you impressive. Well, you know, I, I, I actually, I'm a Julian Schnabel apologist in the same way that I'm a Heim Steinbach apologist. Like, I, I think that I there's... I hate those plate things. I think that there's... The plate paintings are not good, no. But Julian Schnabel's not a bad painter. And I, I think there's a lot of painters from the 80s that are um, undervalued by real culture and overvalued by market culture. And and I think that's actually the distinction that you're dealing with. Or historical. I I here's the thing. I for me, like the entire eighties was summed up with 
by Eric Fischel. And I was like, that's the 80s. Everything was like this kind of shit. Really? And I'm like, that's interesting. I'm like, the fuck? That didn't have shit to do with anything. Who goddamn fucking cares? Because it was like held up as like, oh, we'll return to figuration. It was like, well, the one thing, none of these other fuckers are doing any of this. Like, what else you got here? And they're like, well, the plate guy. And you're like, that's a terrible thing. This was a movement. And they're like, well, and we end there. Right. You're like, no wonder this was a clusterfuck. Like, you all couldn't criticize it for shit or make sense of the world. Sure. So then everybody, to circle back, everybody stopped. And then late 80s, you get speculating. Yeah. I mean, I think that even started before then. But I, but mm-hmm. I, but I take your point. Yeah. Like when no one can make sense of up or down or is this good? Because like a well, lot of like. It's always this question of historiography, right? Like, who's going to actually write this? Like, what yeah. what do you mean when you say historically interesting or whatever? Like, I think that Eric Fischel and Julian Schnabel, Ham Steinbach, and Jeff Koontz, I think they're the ones that are going to make it out alive. Like, if, mm. we're t- if we're talking seriously down the road, 200 years from now. No. That's, no. Well, who would you say it was? It's definitely not Peter Halley. He never innovated anything. No. It's definitely not Basquiat. He died too young. He wasn't that good. And that wasn't that innovative. It was just hot. Yeah. There's not much in that era that's like relevant now. Like those objects in and of themselves don't come screaming back. Well, you, you know how you said a minute ago that Eric Fischel was the guy that was like, oh, that sums up the 80s for you because that was like what was written about it was like this image like the the boy stealing from the purse oh i mean eric F- eric fischel is a very very good artist i really don't i think i think in his dotage like later in life he's you like not... those paintings of rich people naked at pools no, no no no. i don't think he's very good but i think 1980s until like the mid 90s eric fischel is a very very good but that's artist. not a career that's not a span of a breath of no, work no, no, that's that, a... well no it's okay it's like well that's like Martha Diamond level, and it's like... This happens to artists all the time, where people say about Jasper Johns that like he sort of lost his flair somewhere along in the mid-60s because he stopped doing, like... You can't expect artists to reinvent the wheel and like make fire every time. But so Jasper th- Johns did. Well, yeah, except dummies don't see it. I he, don't. I don't think that even in the grander narrative where you're like, "Ooh, maybe the '70s weren't right. great," like comes rolling back with some canonaries, and you're like, "Bitch, what?" I want to be clear that I don't think that Eric Fischel is anything like Jasper Johns. I think he's gotten really terrible. I don't think anyone will confuse that. Okay, but the point being that like his early work is really good art. That's all I'm trying to say. Um, but I wonder. Like, when all of this is written down, what defines what? Like, what what I was going to say was that I wasn't introduced to him until later in life, but, like, ultimately, Jack Goldstein is the best definition of the 80s for me. I, I know that his rediscovery is trendy and already kind of over, but, like, I actually think he sums up the pictures generation and Neo-Geo and Neo-Expressionism sort of perfectly into one thing. No, it's Felix. Felix Gonzalez-Torres? Yeah. But that's very. That's also '90s. But that is '80s well, too. Like listen, '80s to not like Felix Gonzalez Torres is the better artist. It's the crystallization of almost everything except for figuration. But even that, there is no. It's there. F- Felix Gonzalez Torres is a transcendent artist. Like the question was, who will sum up the '80s? It will not be him because he will be defining for half a century. Yeah, that's not the same thing. Yeah, he's he and Gober. I would say. 
Oh, if yeah. we're really going to go there, I would say that Felix Gonzalez Torres and Robert Gober are the two best artists post Jasper Johns, in my opinion. Post Johns and Rauschenberg, it's it's Gober and Torres for sure. Yeah, two gays, four gays. They're all gay. Yeah, gays win. Yeah, gays win. Finally, did you see that Skittles made a um? Oh, a trans thing? For for Pride Month, they put out a package of all white Skittles, and they said on the package it says, there's only one rainbow that matters during Pride Month. I mean, I did know that this was happening because Bone Yang and uh, Julio Torres were doing uh, Twitter DMs with the Skittles brand, and they're like, are you guys doing anything for Pride? And they're like, it's in the works. Don't worry, guys. So, like, I knew there was something, but white Skittles? Yeah. the What wh- flavor is it going to be? Well, I think it's all the flavors, but just with none of the color. But how am I going to pick out the purple ones? They're um. I only like the green and the. They're white ones. genocide skittles. But they're ghost skittles. Yeah. I mean, all skittles taste the same. Let's be real. Yeah, they do. The colored coating is just a uh, placebo effect. They're the same flavor every time. Yeah, I mean, they're just ma- admitting it now. They're just like, well. Also, what does that mean for their tagline, taste the rainbow? Well, there's only one rainbow that matters. That's what they've replaced (laughs) it with. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Skittles, heroes. That rock-hard stone wall. I know that picked up on Mike. I heard that. (laughs) I I heard the slamming of the beverage in my uh, ear ear cans, (laughs) in the cans. Ugh. How long has this been going on? Almost two hours. Oh, we, yeah. should, we should stop. Yeah, this this should end. Okay. Next next stop, uh, potentially watching the Jordan Wilson documentary, or or I need another I need another alternative. Like no no thing. no, I I think that's okay. I'll talk about the Jordan Wilson documentary with you guys because um, I need two I, kind of like consumption of pain. It's that or watch the Boomer thing from Brett Jamel. But I'm like either way, it's five dollars. I'm going to lose. I'm I'm willing to do either thing. In fact, I think we could do both things. I'm I'm really mm. interested in being contrarian in this space because um oh. I think I have very different opinions about Jordan Wolfson in particular than you and Natalie are probably gonna proffer. At least the way that it was presented to me. So, oh, I just want to heckle it. Yeah, exactly. So I love heckling well, rich white you know, dudes. It's fun for me. Well, hey everybody, you have something to look forward to, which is the usual thing. <laughs> <laughs> in these in these tough times, we like to provide constant strategic sameness. Constant strategic sameness. CSS. We like to CSS code all of our websites. <laughs> Except I always fuck that up. Um, <laughs> anyway, okay. Are we okay, done? yeah, let's sign off. Okay, bye bye.